0: Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So, I want you to receive this little illustration. It comes from a very fine book that I actually received prior to Pastor Greg's beginning us in the book of James. And speaking of Pastor Greg and Kara and the girls, uh, may God bless them with continued refreshment in their time away. And uh, we miss him, and I am so grateful for him as my pastor, and I know you are as well. And grateful for the privilege and the honor of being able to preach God's word this morning to Southside. But uh, I was been reading in this wonderful book and was really encouraged, and then I got myself stomped on a little bit by this. So receive this. If you will. The book of James is a bit like having a member of the welcome team. Okay, so we'll just say John is standing up there at the back <clears throat> at the door. So, John, we're going to pick on you. Uh, James is a bit like having John at the church stop you at the door as you leave and ask you directly, So, tell me, what are you going to change today? Do not boast and be false to the truth. James chapter 3 verse 14. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. John cha- or, uh, James chapter 4 verse 6. What are you actually going to do about these things? And our response might be as written here, well, look, I'm I'm kind of new here. And this is a little bit intense, John. No. Tell me what you're going to change. Your inquisitor pins you to the coffee table, smiling ever so forcefully. That awkward welcome team member is actually James. For he just keeps reminding us that humility takes real concrete form in the words you're about to speak to someone over coffee or to another person when you get behind the wheel of your car The wisdom from above or the selfish ambition from below is concretely present when you get your calendar out tomorrow morning and when you check your bank balance over lunch. That's where true religion lives in all those nooks and crannies in our lives. And after I winced, I received it. I thought, wow, that's a strong word. that's not usually how we choose to do church. Uh, In my years of ministry, I found that people more likely desire to come in and feel kind of warm and fuzzy about the day and to go out and be really glad that I showed up and not really have anybody get in your face about something. In fact... I have a dear friend who um, I share with a number of other people in this congregation who said when he moved to his new church in the south, he went with great expectations that it was going to be that wonderful southern hospitality where the door is wide open all the time. And he said, he said Eric, he said, I found it to be the opposite. He said, people will be nice to you to your face, but as soon as you start to get in their business, the door closes. James is kicking the door down. The Rikens, in their wonderful little book on that gives a synopsis basically of all the books of the Bible, uh, have rightly said, and our pastor has alluded to this in his very fine introduction to the book of James, that James is hes very prophetic. This is rather like a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. How many of you have read Proverbs in your Old Testament? What a great book. I'm a big guy on the wisdom literature because I'm so dumb and I need that wisdom and so I I commit myself to reading the Psalms and the Proverbs. But James is like a New Testament proverb giver. And the collection of these Proverbs is what we end up getting in this letter that he has written. It doesn't really follow the same format as any other letter in the New Testament. So James is is rough. And when we come here to hear it, to hear him, to hear what God gave James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the earthly brother, uh, we have to be prepared to get our toes trampled on. So let's go, if we will, to the passage of Scripture. We're beginning with the 11th verse of chapter 4. I'm so grateful every week. Greg brings the word of God, and I have to thank him for that good work that he does because it really challenges me every week, and I really feel that I'm getting fed. I hope you do too. Beginning with the 11th verse of chapter 4, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And here the word is for brothers and sisters. So every time you read that, brothers, ladies, it's for you too. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 13, Come now, you who say, In your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. May he bless it. The speech of the humble. I've divided this into the natural three sections that are here. Each one of them deals with a different aspect of the life of the believer. Once again, not so that we will earn our salvation, but rather that the saved, those who truly know the finished work of Christ, have received him with humility, repented of their sin, and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, so we know how to live, how our lives can make a profound difference and impact in the culture around us our neighbors that person who sits beside us at work or who gets into the truck cab along with us on Monday morning or wherever it may be it's incredibly important according to James but more importantly according to our Lord Jesus that our lives are salt and light that make a real difference in the culture around us. So, first we look at the speech of the humble in verses 11 and 12. How should we speak of family, is your first fill-in there. How should we speak of family? In James, and I will make a number of references here, I may not read all of them, um, or I might, depending on time but uh, they're there for your study later on. In James chapter two, verse eight, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. You're doing right. You're doing God's righteousness. You know, there are few things that feel more awkward, more cringeworthy, and I'll speak of another one here in just a little bit. Than when a husband speaks ill of his wife in the presence of others or a wife does the same thing in the presence of her girlfriends or a mixed group. I've been in mixed groups before where the wife is profoundly disappointed in some aspect of her husband's life, how he's responded to some particular challenge or opportunity, and she begins to just rake him over the coals. I mean, just run him over with the bus in front of everybody. And he turns a little red. He knows that if he opens his mouth, it's going to start a real fight. And he doesn't want to create any bigger problem and i've seen the i've seen it go the other way or when children speak ill of their parents that's incredibly painful they're hurt they lash out and they talk to other people and they talk about how terrible their parents are these these are real betrayals friends This really is a disturbing betrayal. Family members willing to speak against one another. What does it mean on the other side of that coin to speak for family? This is your second point here. What does it mean to speak for family and who is my family? Instead of speaking against family, and there are so many ways in which we can speak against family. They don't even have to be with words. But what does it mean to speak for family? In Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 4, and you're welcome to follow me on this and look at it on whatever form of Scripture you're looking at this morning. The Apostle Paul says this, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Now that's Quite a humbling way to look at yourself. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now, friends, if we not only viewed our families through this holy lens, but this family, we would need to be talking about building programs right away. That might be presumptuous on my part, but you understand what I mean when I say that. It wouldn't take very long for that kind of love and unity to have such a power in your life rippling out that people would, would long to come here to experience who we are as a church family. You see, when we come here, we have to leave our total preoccupation with self as the center of the universe in our cars. Don't even bring it in the parking lot. As we come in, we allow ourselves to submit to the body of Christ. To do otherwise is literally to conjure up some grotesque image of your body fighting itself. And for those who have, who suffer from autoimmune diseases, they might have, a, they might have a, a good understanding of what this means. But physically, on the outside, for you to be punching yourself and breaking your fingers and things like that. No less than that happens in all actuality when we walk into a church and people choose sides or they stay in their cliques or they avoid certain people that maybe they don't think they're going to get along with or maybe they're just the wrong age. We just you know, for some reason decide that's not my kind of person. And I don't, I don't want to spend time with them. I don't really want to get to know them. Those kind of factions need to be put to death in the body of Christ. South Side is one body, one body. We're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over us all. So we submit to that communal sense of the church. In verses 25, uh, 29, and 32, therefore having put away falsehood, now we've talked a little bit about who our family is and now speaking for family, so I kind of have that in reverse order here. But in verse 25 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, therefore because of this, because we're a family, You say, well, I don't really know you. Well, then let's get to know each other. We're a family. I I belabor the point. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Verse 29, because of that, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, not even in casual conversation before or after the service. What's the tone, the nature of our conversations that we have with one another? when we pull aside with our with our buddies or with our girlfriends we all know i certainly know that it is really easy to slide back into things that are not they're not necessarily bad but they're not christ honoring and they they're not doing anything to build up my brothers that i'm hanging with so there's an intentionality about this isn't there There's a purposefulness about this type of of approach to talking. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. I, I think the word in the King James Version that I learned early on in my faith life was edifying. Edify, build up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And in verse 32, more about how. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, how have we been against family, point number three, or anyone, for that matter, in our lives? How have we stood against them in attitude, in posture, in word, in thought, even when speaking truth? so to speak. Well, in that same chapter of Ephesians, in the 15th verse, it says this. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. When we think about the love of Christ and how it was expressed, how was the love of Christ expressed? Ultimately, how was it expressed? I'll let you answer on the cross, on the cross. He willingly, freely allowed himself to be beaten nearly to death, pierced and hung naked on a cross in total humiliation and in agony. That was Christ willfully, intentionally, lovingly expressing his love for you and I as our substitute. And so when we think about speaking the truth in love, it comes from that love, sacrificial. So it's pretty hard to speak truth with a barb when we're thinking about the sacrifice of Christ, who had every right to throw barbs everywhere he went at the sinners around him, and yet chose to die instead. So here's an honest question. What's my real motivation for saying what I'm saying or what I'm about to say as I go to gather, quickly run with this little tidbit, this thing that I, it's just right on the tip of my tongue and I'm just about ready, as James says, to start a forest fire. What's my real motivation for saying what I'm saying and how I'm going to say it? You see, truth does need to be spoken, doesn't it? You know, if Hank notices something about me that is inconsistent with the message of the gospel. And we've spent some time together studying the Bible together, but he notices, wow, there's, that doesn't, that's not consistent with what I've heard coming out of Eric's mouth. And Hank comes up to me and says, hey, brother, you know, you really stunk it up. You, you made a train wreck of that. Well, He's telling me the truth, but maybe he needs to say it in a different way so that I can receive it with grace. And knowing Hank, he would probably share it with great grace. When we are against others in our posture, in our language and thoughts, we place ourselves as judge, above the judge himself. In other words, I'm standing outside the law. I do this. Have you ever done this? We're all of a sudden, you're looking at somebody else in there, you look at some of this crazy stuff that's on the televisions today, or, or we see all the horrific things in the Middle East, and we want to stand outside of it, and we want to make ourselves a judge, and we want to say that I've been doing this, I got myself into such a rage in the last few weeks, thinking about the injustice of some of this stuff. And what I'm doing is I'm pulling myself outside of the law and I'm putting myself over it and I am actually putting myself in the place of God. Who else tried to do that? Satan did. And God cast him down. We can't put ourselves above the judge. So here's the challenge. And it's written right in the verse at the end of of verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? So I want you to say this out loud with me. I'm going to say it once, and it's going to sound absolutely horrific. You're not going to want to say it out loud, but I want us all to say it together. My word and judgment are always right. Everyone else is wrong. My word and judgment are always right. Say it. Go ahead and say it. My word and judgment are always right. Everyone else is wrong. Does that make you cringe a little bit? Is it hard to say that out loud? When I wrote it down, it made the hair stand up on my arms. I'm thinking, "Ooh," but that's exactly what we do when we put ourselves above the law. The speech of the humble. How about the schedule of the humble found in verses 13 through 17? Now this section really slapped me around. Really got a hold of me this week. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven says this. You have it referenced there. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. So, Is it, number one, wrong to make plans? Is it wrong to make plans? Obviously, according to Proverbs 24, verse 27, and many other verses, if we decided to dig into our Bibles, no, it's not wrong to make plans. But what good word does God have for us concerning The proper perspective, point number two. The proper perspective in planning. How am I doing, Beth? Am I keeping up on those fill-ins okay? (laughs) She looked at me this morning. She said, Eric, she said, there's a lot of fill-ins on here. (laughs) Proper perspective in planning. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Can anybody say it out loud? Can anybody recite it from memory? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He who will direct your paths? He will direct your paths. Now this is an easy reference to this very familiar document. Do you have one of these? Listen to the first paragraph. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me all the time, energy, and resources necessary to do everything you're asking me to do today. Apart from your guidance, I won't know what to do and what not to do. But with your wisdom and your guidance, I will know what to do and what not to do. Help me to keep in step with you. And the last paragraph. Father, I belong to you. My life is yours. This day is I'm available for however you want to use me today. And I rest in the fact that whatever you ask of me, you will also provide the desire and capacity to do it. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. That's been a great prayer. My wife and I have been praying it. I think she's been really good every day. For me, it's probably about four days out of the week. But it's, it's having a profound impact on the way we think. How often, point three, does our planning excuse our lack of doing the right thing right now? Doing the right thing right now. And this is what really got a stranglehold on me. David Gibson in the same book that I quoted from earlier with that illustration at the beginning said this, our diaries, and he's a Brit. So I think here he's referring to our daily planners. Or in my case, ye good old daytimer or the Franklin planner or whatever, or your phone. Our diaries can make atheists of us. Is your diary making an atheist of you in practical terms? How does our planning excuse our lack of doing the right thing right now? James identifies this lacking as sin in verse 17. That's point number four. So, back years ago, over 20 years ago, it's probably been about 25 or 30 years ago, I was the yellow post it note man. Do we have any post it note people here? My wife loves post it notes. She's actually gotten a little better about it, but I would find post it notes everywhere, not just. For me, but especially for her. I say, honey, why don't you write these down in a book and keep these addresses and phone numbers? Oh no, this is better. And there's post-it notes stuck all over the place. Well, I was the post-it note pastor. My desk was covered with post-it notes with all sorts of weird little jots and tittles on it and phone numbers so badly so that I couldn't even remember what phone number went with what person half the time. My life was a total administrative wreck. I missed appointments. I offended people. I forgot details. I was a mess. Until a friend of mine who was in a mission that I was affiliated with said, hey man, he said, I use a day timer. He said, you ought to look into it. So I bought a day timer. And I used that thing religiously for probably 10, 15 years, and then, like most people, I went to my phone, to-do lists on the phone and so forth. Well, recently, in the last year, I went back to using the day timer. But if you could have seen my day timer, now here was Friday. About half of the to-do list is, is filled in, if you can see that far. But when I was a young pastor, I would fill this whole thing up and go beyond. And there were notes written all over the place. Oh, I was so proud. I was so proud of it. I would write in it real neatly. Now it's just chicken scratch. But I would write real neatly because every one of those things were my plan. And I was going to work my plan. And in the meantime, there would be people that God brought into my life or situations that God brought into my life, and they were staring me right in the face. But no, you're not part of the plan today. And I wanted to push them off. That did not work well. I had check marks beside all of my list. But at the end of the day, I wondered what kind of an eternal investment I had actually made. Let's not let our planners, whether they be digital or written, make practical atheists of it so the challenge is this and it's written in verse 17 so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin what are you avoiding today that you know god is calling you to you've heard pastor greg talk about or somebody in the shepherd team somebody's invited you into this opportunity to serve or that a small group a discipleship group and you're avoiding it because you don't want nobody in your business or you don't want to stretch out and touch people like that. John's going to stop you before you go out today. What are you going to do about it, right, John? That doesn't sound like you. You're not that mean. But regardless, we need to do what's before us. So the proper posture, again, did I say that for the first one? Humility and repentance. Repentance. Humility and repentance for point one. It's also the same thing for point two. Humility and repentance. The stockpile of the humble. I could have chosen some other more appropriate word, but it started with an S. So we have the speech, the schedule, and now the stockpile. And then, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, that's pretty indicative of our hoarding tendencies. So the tone changes here. This is not so much anymore directed at the church. It's almost as if James, standing at his pulpit now, he looks outside. We open up the windows of the church and the doors, and he raises his gaze, lifts his voice up, and he shouts out to these people. And what does he say? He said, come now, you rich. Weep. And how? Now, does that mean that there's nobody who's wealthy or relatively wealthy in our midst? No, not necessarily. So he could be speaking to the church. But I think this appears to be more a warning to primarily those who are outside the church. But it serves as a cautionary tale, warning to guard our hearts from the love of riches. In other words, James lets you and I overhear his rebuke to selfish wealthy people who hoard to themselves and frankly if the shoe fits we have to wear it as well because this is a relative thing i mean you've often heard it said and especially as sharon got up here and prayed for these gifts to children who've never some of them never received a gift in relation to the rest of the world we're filthy rich we may feel really poor comparatively Scraping by, but we have so much more than most other people in the world. Well, this here is a haunting shadow of greed. It's point number two. It's a haunting shadow of greed, and it is is very uncomfortable. The miseries that are coming upon you, it's almost you can feel this shadow behind you reaching out in the cold of it. There's... There's an uncomfortable feeling in the hearts of the rich. I think most of them, if they have any conscience whatsoever, sense that there's a day of reckoning that will come. But they just can't say no to hoarding. And then point three, there's an agony of perpetual dissatisfaction. We all know this agony. In Psalm 106, verses 13 through 15, The psalmist says, they soon forgot his works. Now he's talking about the children of Israel who had all of the wonderful provisions of God. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. Very few of us are willing to live simply. Very few of us are willing to to have our lives sustained with simple manna. No, we want the quail. We want the leeks and the onions. We want everything out. And here I'm referencing the children of Israel and their exodus from Egypt. We want it all. It's hard in a culture like America to think about living simply. Anybody here have a Costco closet? We have a Sam's Club surplus. Isn't it easy to go to the big box stores, to these bulk stores, and just load that thing up sometimes I swear I'm partly Amish and that's no discredit to the Amish because they're buying for a whole lot of people feeding usually whole communities of people for these gatherings not so with me no it's it's so easy to just go ahead and buy all those snacks that I want all those little goodies and load them up in the freezer oh honey we need another freezer We need more pantry space. So do we have Costco closet mentality? Sam's Club surplus mentality? So this is where it strikes close to home for us. But the cries of the cheated come before the Lord of hosts. And now we move back to those who intentionally are hoarding at the expense of others. The cries of the cheated. The wallets of the hoarding wealthy may be screaming at them, let go of me, and they're deaf. But I'll tell you who does hear. God hears. He hears that cry. He sees the injustice of it, and he hears the cry of the impoverished who are taken advantage of, who are exploited. And there is no end to the exploited in our world today. You know who he talks about here, the Lord of hosts? That's the God of armies. I don't know about you. I do not want to be in the crosshairs of the God of armies. Verse five, or point number five, the terrible paradox of ill gained wealth. The terrible paradox of ill gained wealth. We may often get what we think we most wanted, but we'll lose what's most important. Oh, if you work hard enough, you'll get what you want. But you will most likely lose what's most important. I have been at the bedside of many, 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 maybe hundreds of people who are close to death. None of them that I can recall ever talked about their bank account. They did not talk about their stuff. Unless it was, I want to make sure that my children have these things or that this is given to the church or whatever. It's giving away at that point. They're not thinking about these material things, about bank accounts, about their position. We may get what we want but we will lose what's most important if we hoard. And it goes on to say that we are literally being fattened for the slaughter. I'm not going to read Luke chapter 12 but it's there for you to read and it's a powerful illustration from the mouth of Jesus in a parable form and I would encourage you to go home and read it today fattened for the slaughter just like all those poor innocent turkeys that are running around right now it won't be long before they're sitting in the middle of our tables they're being fattened for slaughter verse 7 the powerlessness of the impoverished the powerlessness of the impoverished. Do we feel any grief? Do we have any compassion in our hearts for those who suffer while we gain? Listen, the worst thing, this is what I don't want to happen. I don't want you to think, man, he really came down on me because I finally got a little bit of buffer in my account and now I'm not like dying, drowning in debt. No, that's not about this. It's about when we are We are willfully selfish with our possessions and we look to hoard more and more and more at the expense of others without caring about what other people need around us. May God lift our gaze and open our eyes to people that we could bless. And maybe it's as simple as the pay it forward kind of thing. Buy the coffee of the person behind you. Whatever it may be. Some way that we can bless others. Here's the challenge. And once again, it's written right in the text. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Gibson says this, we make a living by what we get. But we make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get. We all have to, we have to make a living. Work is a good thing, it's a holy thing. We need to make a living. By what we get but we make a life by what we give how much of yourself starting with you are you giving to the work of God so the proper posture and here the third time's a charm isn't it what's the answer humility and repentance so let's stand together and recite this passage that's a core passage that ties together this whole section that Pastor Greg started with last week with us. And let's read it aloud together and then pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.